and welcome back to the Herbert Smith Freehills London Corporate Crime and Investigations Practice podcast. As ever, our aim is to bring you timely and incisive commentary on key developments in the CCNI space. I'm Kate Meakin, a partner in the practice, and I'm joined today by Stephen Thompson, a senior associate from the team. Hi, Kate. Always nice to speak with you. In our first podcast in this series last August, we discussed Deferred Prosecution Agreements, or DPAs, These allow law enforcement to defer prosecution of a corporate in exchange for its corporation and for compliance with various conditions, usually including a financial payment. We also talked about the UK government's fifth DPA reached between the SFO and a company from the Serco Group. If you would like to hear more about DPAs generally, or the Serco DPA, a link to the first podcast is available on our website. Our focus today is a quick roundup of recent DPA activity since then. Stephen, what's been happening in the world of DPAs? So in the last nine months, the SFO has accelerated its pace, uh, announcing DPAs that it's secured with three separate corporates. Firstly, Garalp Systems, a British company which had made a series of corrupt payments to a South Korean public official. And secondly, Airbus, the European aircraft manufacturer, which accepted that it had failed to prevent bribery in jurisdictions spanning four continents. And finally, G4S, a British company that defrauded the Ministry of Justice in respect to electronic monitoring services it provided. So in this edition, we will talk about those three most recent UK DPAs and highlight just a few of the points that we find particularly interesting in respect of each of them. Stephen, why don't you start us off by talking a bit about the SFO's sixth DPA with Garalp Systems? Sure thing, Kate. The SFO announced this DPA in December last year. Garalp is a relatively small UK business and it offers a niche product, seismic detection products that are purchased by public bodies around the world. Between 2002 and 2015, Garalp made bribes of over $1 million to Dr. Chi, an official at the South Korean Institute of Geoscience and Mineral Resources. In exchange, Dr. Chi provided Garup with illegitimate advantages in the South Korean seismological market. Dr. Chi himself was convicted for laundering bribes from Garup and another company following a trial in California in July 2017. As part of a DPA, Garup accepted responsibility for two offences. Firstly, conspiracy to make corrupt payments. And secondly, the UK Bribery Act Section 7 offence of failing to prevent bribery by its employees. And what were the terms of the agreement that the SFO reached with Geralt? Well, along with the usual agreement as to the facts, the DPA had three main features. Firstly, Geralt agreed to cooperate in the prosecutions of three of its former employees. We should note that all three of these employees were eventually acquitted. Secondly, Garup agreed to report to the SFO an annual review of its anti-bribery and corruption program. And lastly, Garup agreed to disgorge the £2 million of profit that it received as a result of the unlawful conduct. And are there specific features of this DPA that you thought were of particular interest? Well, this case to me really illustrates how flexible a tool a DPA can be in terms of achieving a tailored result. So in considering this DPA, Justice Davis considered that the guideline penalty for Graup's conduct would have been around £4 million. Instead, however, the DPA did not impose a financial penalty or even repayment of SFO's costs. It only required Graup to disgorge its profits, 
without any specific timetable for repayment within the DPA's five-year term. This was because as a small company, Justice Davis was convinced that the financial consequences of even the disgorgement requirement for Garalp would be severe. His honor held that the interests of justice did not require Garalp to be pursued into insolvency. In fact, the DPA and the judgment expressly contemplate that at the end of a five-year term, Garalp may not be able to repay the disgorgement amount at all, and so may need to apply to vary the agreement or otherwise be prosecuted. And that is quite extraordinary for a judge to expressly recognise in advance that the agreement might be breached. That's right, Kate. So that covers the Garalp DPA, and that was followed by the Airbus agreement for a company that is really on the other end of the corporate spectrum in terms of size. Would you mind talking us through that agreement, Kate? Of course, and you're right to highlight the scale. Airbus is, of course, one of the world's largest companies and one of Europe's largest corporate employers. Following a four-year investigation by a joint investigation team of UK and French authorities and a parallel US investigation, Airbus accepted a statement of facts that demonstrated that bribery was endemic in certain areas of its core business. In order to increase sales, Airbus's service providers had offered or provided bribes to national airlines around the world. Dame Victoria Sharp approved the UK DPA in January this year, which related to bribery in Malaysia, Sri Lanka, Taiwan, Indonesia and Ghana. Further DPAs were agreed with the French and American authorities, which related to conduct in a further seven jurisdictions. So presumably, Kate, the DPA involved a significant financial penalty. The size of the penalty really is striking, certainly from a UK perspective. The UK DPA required Airbus to pay 991 million euros to the SFO within 30 days, constituting a disgorgement of profit of 586 million, a penalty of 398 million, and the SFO's investigation costs of 7 million. To put that into perspective, that amount is greater than the total of all the previous sums paid pursuant to earlier UK DPAs and in fact is more than double the total of the fines paid in respect of all criminal conduct in England and Wales for the year 2018. Despite the size of this penalty, it in fact reflects a discount of 50% from the applicable amount based on Airbus's early admission of guilt and exemplary cooperation with the SFO's investigation. But the UK fine is not the end of the matter. As a result of the international cooperation, Airbus has paid fines to the US, French and UK governments, which in total amount to almost 3.6 billion euros. Right. So one question I had about the international aspect was this. Since the Airbus DPAs involve three separate countries' law enforcement agencies, what would happen if the different agencies disagreed on whether Airbus had proved satisfactory completion of the DPAs? And that's the question that might be of particular interest, given the heightened trade tensions currently between the EU and US, one might think. In essence, the Airbus settlement involves three separate agreements, one made in each of the US, France and the UK. Each DPA relates to conduct with respect to different geographical areas and customers. So although the DPAs are related, compliance with one does not strictly depend on compliance with another. Each authority is responsible for determining compliance with the DPA in its own jurisdiction. It is conceivable that one state could determine that Airbus has breached its agreement and initiate a prosecution of Airbus in its own jurisdiction, while the other states determine there has been compliance with their respective agreements. But it would be pretty unusual if that were to take place. 
Before we move on, I should really also flag that this was the first UK DPA with a non-UK entity, Airbus SE, a Netherlands-registered entity. It's therefore of some interest in respect of jurisdiction under Section 7 of the UK Bribery Act, and that Section 7 offence of failure to prevent was relevant here. As listeners probably know, Section 7 has a broad jurisdiction and covers, among other things, bodies corporate which carry on a business or part of a business in the UK. The question of what carrying on part of a business in the UK entails has been an area of interest since the Act has passed. Here, the parties agreed that Airbus did carry on business in the UK, and this appears to have been on the basis that Airbus SE had two UK subsidiaries, and those subsidiaries were subject through intermediary holding companies outside of the UK to the strategic and operational management of Airbus SE, the party to the DPA. While the point was presumably not argued in detail, having been agreed by the parties, Dame Sharp concurred that it followed that Airbus SE was subject to the Section 7 offence of failure to prevent. This is interesting since there is arguably scope for a narrower reading of Section 7, and it's a reminder to non-UK parent companies that their management of UK incorporated subs may make the parent subject to the Act, even in respect of conduct which is unrelated to the UK. In this case, though, as noted, jurisdiction was agreed by the parties, and Airbus's acceptance of the SFO's jurisdiction factored into the very positive view of Airbus's cooperation, along with other factors. So that briefly covers the Airbus DPA. Stephen, that brings us up to the most recent DPA, the UK's eighth, with G4S. That's right. So G4S Care and Justice Services UK Limited, which we'll call G4S for short, provided electronic monitoring services to the Ministry of Justice from 2005 to 2013. These services were used, for example, to monitor bail and home detention conditions for accused and convicted criminals. G4S's contract entitled the Ministry to recover 50% of the value of any unanticipated cost efficiencies, which G4S achieved under the monitoring services contract. However, G4S reported fraudulent costs to the Ministry that were far greater than its true costs. This prevented the Ministry from recovering funds that it was entitled to under the contract. And what were the financials of this agreement? G4S agreed to pay a financial penalty of over £38 million, as well as the SFO's full investigation costs of almost £6 million. This was in addition to over £22 million in compensation that G4S had already paid to the Ministry in respect of those unanticipated cost efficiencies as part of an earlier settlement agreement. But perhaps more importantly than the financial consequences are the non-financial ones. Both G4S and its parent company agreed to a root and branch self-cleaning as part of this DPA. Justice Davis described this as more intense scrutiny than in any previous DPA. So for comparison, the Serco Group's compliance regimen described in its DPA consists of a single paragraph of text, but the G4S DPA prescribes a detailed mandatory process for compliance improvement across eight full pages. And this includes, for the first time, requiring a corporate to engage an independent external reviewer without specifying the identity of that reviewer. And that reviewer will assess the implementation of its corporate renewal program and compliance policies. The DPA also requires the corporate to submit forward-looking implementation plans to the SFO 
for the duration of the DPA. In comparison, the earlier Circo DPA, for example, allows the corporate to do its own reporting and only requires reporting on already implemented remedial efforts, not proposed future plans. Justice Davis, in approving the DPA, found that this self-cleaning was necessary and appropriate given G4S's role as a government contractor in order to reassure the public of the integrity of G4S's accounting and governance processes. But the SFO's update in January of this year to its operational handbook on evaluating compliance programs indicates that going forward, DPAs are likely to include a monitor being appointed at the organization's expense. If the SFO considers that the G4S DPA's more prescriptive approach to compliance monitoring results in successful improvements, we can expect that in future, corporates may be under pressure to accept this approach in future DPAs. It will be interesting to see how the SFO's approach to renewal and compliance develops. And what else can we draw out from the G4S DPA in terms of cooperation and how that impacts on levels of monetary penalty? I noticed that the discount here on the penalty was 40% and on a number of previous DPAs we've seen discounts of 50%. Does that reflect a lesser level of cooperation by G4S? This was only the second time that a corporate's penalty was discounted by less than 50% in a DPA. And that's right, it was because the court did not consider that G4S's cooperation was exemplary. The issue was that until the last 10 months of the SFO's six and a half year investigation, G4S did not provide the SFO with access to records of all of its privileged interviews conducted by its solicitors and accountants. This is an important point for companies to consider when deciding whether to waive privilege in response to an SFO investigation and at what stage. The SFO's guidance on corporate cooperation says that the SFO will not penalise a corporate for being uncooperative if it decides not to waive privilege, as we should add is its right. However, the decision could mean that the corresponding public interest factor against prosecution in the DPA code of practice will not apply. An obiter comment in the Court of Appeals 2018 SFO and ENRC decision may be taken to support this position. While the SFO may not seek a higher penalty from a company that insists on its right to privilege, it is possible that it will seek to apply a smaller discount to any penalty. Now, there are, of course, a number of considerations around a decision to waive privilege and the timing and extent of such a waiver. So it will always be a finely balanced decision. Quite right. And that may be something to explore in a further episode. That was quite a whistle-stop tour, as each of those DPAs has myriad other interesting and related points that we haven't had chance to cover, including, for example, the treatment of individuals by the authorities, and the cooperation and work between international authorities, particularly seen in Airbus. In the past months, we've also seen broader developments which will feed into the relative attractiveness of DPAs and the weighing exercise that a corporate will undertake in deciding whether to pursue that course, if indeed it is available to it. Such broader points include the successful application by Barclays to dismiss charges of fraud and false accounting against it, on the basis that cited senior individuals did not represent its directing mind and will for the relevant transactions, and thus could not create culpability for the company. We look forward to discussing that and other points in a further episode. That's right, Kate. And we should also remind our listeners that if they would like more detail on any of these three DPAs, they can find links to our relevant e-briefings on our website. 
We also recently gave a webinar to clients on DPAs and anti-bribery and corruption from a perspective of the UK, United States, France and South Africa. So you'll also find the link to that recording on the website. Finally, of course, please do get in touch with us or the rest of the team if you would like to discuss anything we've touched upon in today's podcast in more detail. And thanks for your time. Thanks for listening.